0: This is the Materials in Megabytes podcast. For this new episode, we're doing an in-depth discussion of a new paper published in the Journal of Chemical Physics. It's called Screening Billions of Candidates for Solid Lithium-Ion Conductors, a Transfer Learning Approach for Small Data. One of the common problems we encounter in applying machine learning to material science is that we're limited by small amounts of available data. This paper proposes a new way to combat this problem by combining physical insights with transfer learning. This allows for a large-scale screening of billions of candidate materials with small data. Today, I'm talking to two of the authors of this exciting new paper, Austin Sendek and Dost Chebek.
1: I'm Austin Sendek. I'm a visiting scholar in the Department of Material Science and Engineering at Stanford. Uh, completed my PhD in the department in uh, 2018 and in addition to the research I do there now, I'm also uh, CEO founder of a company called Aionics that does machine learning for materials research.
2: My name is Ekin Doğuş Çubuk. I'm a research scientist at Google Brain. I work at the intersection of physics and deep learning. And um, the reason I worked on this project on batteries is because I was doing my postdoc at Stanford and Austin had just started this field of using machine learning to design mat- battery materials, and the idea was to use um, new developments in deep learning with this new field that Austin created. And at this point, Austin really is the leading expert on the use of machine learning to design batteries, not just at the atomistic level, but you know, considering all the manufacturing, the complicated aspects, the industry aspects. So I'm really happy to be here talking about this
1: paper with them.
0: So Austin, this paper is based on your previous work on predicting ion conductivity. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Sure, so this paper builds on um, previous work that we originally published in 2016 in uh, the journal Energy and Environmental Science. And in that paper, um, that was our first, um, through our first work in using machine learning based techniques to predict this property of ionic conductivity. And um, Ionic conductivity is, is, I think, a really uh, good and interesting property for um, machine machine learning predictions because it's very time-consuming to predict through other means, whether those are experimental means or through um, sort of first principles or physics-based simulations. Um, So in that paper, we trained structural features um, on 40 examples of known um, ion conductors with uh, ion conductivities ranging over, I think it was 11 orders of magnitude. Um and we only had 40 training points because there's just not a whole lot of data out there. And so we had a very small training set, but we used these structural features which incorporated a lot of knowledge um, from previous works over the last few decades in how structure affects conductivity. And so we were actually able to get a pretty good um a pretty good model, which we later validated in a follow-up paper in Chemistry of Materials, um, that was able to predict ion conductivity in candidate materials. Um, with about three x um, more accuracy than what we'd expect through random guessing, so um, based on that work, that was our original inspiration. But we ran into this into this problem that we needed to know the structures of materials in order to apply this model. And uh, we know the structures of maybe hundred thousand materials out there, maybe more. Um, but in principle, the space of candidate materials is really infinite, and so. If we want to be able to screen huge numbers, millions or billions of materials, we had to get uh, around this problem of needing to know structures first. So that's where elemental descriptors come in. And the difference between structural and elemental descriptors is that elemental descriptors just are based on the chemical formula, so what are the elements in the structure, rather than actually needing to know these geometric you know, coordinates of the elements uh, or the atoms in the actual structures. but. It's not straightforward and not easy to use these type, these type of, of um, elemental descriptors generally because they don't capture as much information as structure. And we know structure is very important in, in determining properties, so although generic elemental descriptors may enable us to screen a broader space of materials, uh, it's not always the best idea to use them because you don't necessarily know if you're going to get good uh, performance if your model is going to be as predictive as a structural model. And so. That was sort of the dilemma um, that we've we've been facing, and and that was what inspired the work of this paper, which applies transfer learning to sort of get around that problem.
0: So you have the data set of 4D experimental measurements and two models trained on this data with different features. There's EML, where the E stands for elemental features, and SML, where the S stands for structural features. What were the main findings from comparing these two models with different features?
2: Yeah, so that was an interesting part of the beginning where we found that the elemental model in the paper called EML and the structural model which is called SML perform pretty much the same on the original 4D sample data set. And um, this is kind of surprising because structure should have a lot of information that is relevant, as Austin pointed out. So on a first glance this seems like we should just be using EML and not worry about structure. But then when we tried to apply this idea to an external data set, which um, included randomly selected materials project entries and simulated by DFT, we found that the predictions of SML are really good, as good as the original prediction on the um, experimental data. Whereas the predictions of EML, the elemental model, seemed really bad. It was actually worse than random guessing. this is not too surprising, because what ended up happening is our dataset was so small, and elemental ML um, was too flexible without using any of the physical constraints. So it kind of overfit to the training set and the validation set when trained just on elemental features, whereas Austin's original model, SML, was being constrained by physical considerations. So that ended up um, extrapolating well. And uh, this kind of shows the difference between, you know, the traditional uh, pack learning type machine learning versus using data to infer physics, where we have to consider the fact that our models have physics constraints, our data has physics constraints, which can make the generalization bounds um, irrelevant, and it can help us generalize much better than a machine learning expert would expect.
0: Could you briefly explain the idea of transfer learning? And typically, when we think of transfer learning, especially in areas such as computer vision, we think of using learned features or representations from one problem domain with sufficient data to help solve a problem in a different domain with small data. In this work, it almost seems like everything is the opposite. We use learned labels from one problem domain with small data, but good features, in order to help solve a problem in the same domain using different features. This is an interesting framework. Could you discuss this a little bit more?
2: Sure. Yeah, that's a great question because um, I was worried about calling this transfer learning since it doesn't really fit in the uh, commonly used approach to transfer learning. So, right. So traditionally, what people do is they'll train a large model on a large data set, and then hope that the features that were learned in that large model can be useful to for some other task that only has a small data set. And this has been shown to be helpful. It's usually called fine-tuning. If you're fine-tuning the rest of your model, it's pretty effective. It can be very effective in vision. It can be effective in natural language processing. And here, what we're doing is a bit different. So I guess one way of defining transfer learning is that you have a trained model, and then you transfer its uh, knowledge to some other model. So if you define transfer learning that generally, then this work applies. because the idea is we're transferring the knowledge in the structural model to the elemental model. Um, another similar approach in machine learning to this would be distillation. I thought about distillation because um, in distillation work, you would train a large model, record the model's predictions on samples, and then train another model on the same data, but with the predictions from the original model in the loss function. So you'd kind of have a two-term loss, one is the correct labels and the other one is predictions from the large model and somehow that seems to also help. In this case, as you pointed out, it's very different, it's almost the opposite, but we do know that the structural model has more predictive power than the elemental model. So although structural model is not necessarily larger, it's more predictive. And from that perspective, it's similar to vision and NLP because in those cases when people transfer, the large model is the better generalizing, more predictive model. And that seems to be true in all of these over-parameterized models in machine learning, where the larger you make your model, not only does the training accuracy improve, but also the validation accuracy improves. Um, Yes, so in this case, I guess the transfer is not done via um, model size, but via physical understanding.
0: So given that you're restricted by the problem of having small data, um, what else did you do to combat this problem of small data?
1: So this is where the idea of applying transfer learning comes in and um, I would love to take credit for it but this was really all the, uh, the genius of my co-author Dosh Chubuk who uh, decided that this could be a really good way to get around this problem because um, What we have is a small data set. We have 40, uh, 40 materials and if we're going to use this elemental descriptor set as we want to, Um, it's not going to extrapolate very well off of of a um, 40-example data set, so we need a bigger data set. Um, But we don't have a bigger data set, so what do we do? So this is, um, we use this kind of two-step approach, which we're calling transfer learning. So we take the predictions which were made off of the small data set and the structural descriptors from the paper from 2016. And that gave us about 12,000 predictions for 12,000 materials where we knew the structure. So now we assume that those predictions are the ground truth, that this model is always right. Now that's not actually the case, you know, there's, the model's not gonna be perfect, but if, if we, we know that it's, it's reliable um, to some extent, and so if we assume that those predictions are always right, then all of a sudden we now have 12,000 predictions of ionic conductivity, and that looks like a pretty nice, pretty large training set for us to apply a uh, more um, generic or elemental model. So, um, this first model we call uh, SML, structural, um, uh, structural Machine Learning Model. And the uh, the model that we trained on this small data set with only elemental features, we call EML, Elemental Machine Learning Model. And this, the third model that we, where we trained elemental features on the predictions of the structural model, we call ESML. And when we applied this to a test set, we found actually that the structural model and this transfer learning structural model performed uh, very similarly. Actually, the, the, structural, um, the structural model was the best, but the elemental structural model was, um, was you know, very very similar in performance. It was about 90% versus 85%. And the elemental model only performed about uh, 52% in accuracy. So it's a really significant improvement um, by doing this two-step training process.
0: It seems like the accuracy of ESML... When screening billions of new candidate materials is dependent on two things. First, the accuracy of SML on the materials project dataset. And second, the ability of any model trained in the materials project dataset to extrapolate to the full space of candidate materials. So, could you talk a little bit about how you tested the accuracy of the ESML model?
2: Yeah, that's, um unfortunately a, a current limitation of machine learning that every single model one trains only really works when the distribution of the validation set or the test set is very similar to the training set. And since we have two of these models, we kind of have this um, propagation of generalization problem. And um, that's right. So unfortunately, both of those models kind of assume that they'll be applied to data that's similar to the data they were trained on. And one interesting outcome that we've seen in the paper is that if we take the ESML model and then just use it to uh, screen, you know, uh, random compositions, we see that 50% of them are found to be good conductors. And this is clearly not realistic. If you look at, you know, the currently known compositions, only, you know, less than uh, maybe 7% of them might be uh good lithium-ion conductor. So then the question is, what's happening? And we found that the reason is most of the randomly sampled compositions are not actually stable. And um, it's hard to you know exactly calculate their stability, but one way we of estimating is to just look at the uh, valence uh, states that the individual elements are uh, likely to be found in. And then when we filter the considered composition by the stability requirement, suddenly the ratio of good lithium ion conductors goes down to about 5 uh, percent. And um, this is very promising because it kind of shows that a simple way of filtering the data such that the um, the target set becomes more similar the training set suddenly improves the um, the reliability of the results and how reasonable the distributions of negative and positive classes look. I think one way of improving this work would have been to only choose uh, materials from the materials project that will have a similar composition to what's in the original experimental set. And one way of doing this is of course to just uh, make sure first of all that they're the most stable phase. Although that's also complicated because the experimental data might have some phases that are not the global minimum. And um, yes, yeah, so future work could look at kind of how reliable and how overlapping these distributions are and how they can be made more similar for um, the generalization after two model applications to be as high as possible.
0: So moving on to the next part, could you explain the motivation for learning the features for the elements and how does this
2: work? Uh, sure. So As mentioned at the beginning of the interview, one of our goals was to have the advantages of a generic deep learning model where the features are not being calculated by an expensive uh, process. And we also want to, of course, have the advantage of a physical model which generalizes better. And if you think about generic features, we're currently, originally the elemental model was using um, properties of elements that people have known to be important. So one of these could be the electronegativity, or it could be you know, how many um, electrons it has in the out- outer shell. But these are also not as generic as they could be. Um, these are still coming from the fact that people have you know, studied these atoms, elements, and found uh, relevant aspects of them that seem to uh, determine their properties in solids. So then the question was, how far can we push the idea of making the features generic? And one way of doing that is to not consider any of the periodic table uh, knowledge that we know and just try to even learn that from data. So to do this, what we the, the way we did this in our uh, concrete terms is we represented each element just as a one hot vector. So it's just zeros everywhere except for one where the um, atom is listed in order. Um, and then the one hot vector is being embedded in some embedding space. And that embedding space or some dimension, you know, this could be any number, but we found that a number between um, three to five is pretty good. The vector that's in the embedding space kind of somehow has the properties of the element, especially as it relates to the ionic conductivity. So the way to do this, right, is you have a one hot vector for elements, and then you embed them by some embedding matrix that is learned through training. And then we had to do some tricks to make sure that no matter how many elements the material has, the final representation is invariant to the number of elements. And you know there are ways of doing this. One way is to just average the elements. Another one is to average, but also you know look at standard deviation, some kind of reduction method that's invariant to um, yeah, which elements are present. But this idea isn't very new in deep learning, of course, because word two vec has been very Um, influential in language processing, but also even in material science. For example, the message passing passing neural network uh, worked by Justin, Sam, and collaborators at Google. They used the same idea, but they didn't really study the embedding and they didn't call it word2vec because what they were doing was they just had one-hot vectors for the elements and then they just had a projection into the um, graph convolutions. And I guess the question is, why would you want to do this? One, way, one reason is you might be worried that the periodic table properties of elements influence the result. And what might be better is if you just objectively learn the elemental properties from data itself. For example, the elements might contribute to underconducting conductivity differently than they contribute to some other property that people um, derive electronegativity for. And another idea here is, again, to push the transfer learning direction further. Because if we can learn some elemental representation that's useful, we could then use this for some other task. So you could first learn ionic conductivity, but then use that to predict uh, some other element conductivity. And we haven't explored it in the paper, but I think that would be very interesting.
0: So I saw another paper that used Word2Vec for elements in PNAS. So how does this work differ from what they did in the
2: paper? Yeah, so they um, came up with the embedding, the atom to wake um, projection by using unsupervised machine learning. So in that case, they have data, they don't necessarily have labels that they're trying to fit, but then they see if um, the elements have a certain distribution, certain clustering in the space. and That's of course very exciting because in that case, their results are not in any way um, dependent on the supervised learning on labels. Um, In deep learning in general, unsupervised learning has always been the holy grail because there are some reasons to think that humans might be learning a lot from unsupervised data as opposed to supervised data because babies don't have parents that constantly show them labels. But at the same time, from a practical perspective, we do know that the supervised representations are often more effective. Um, This might be because of some fundamental reason, or it could just be because we currently don't have good ways of learning unsupervised representations. Um, So yeah, the main difference is that's unsupervised versus ours is supervised. So we might expect ours to be more effective for tasks that are related to ionic conductivity prediction, whereas theirs might be more general. But that kind of approach as deep learning gets better at unsupervised learning might be more exciting.
0: In your paper, you have a figure um, for elemental contributions to the ionic conductivity, um, which seems to indicate that some elements make the material more likely to be a good ion conductor, and some make the material less likely to be a good ion conductor. So given that, can we use this as a simple screening criteria when searching for new ion conductor candidates?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, One of the things that we found in this study was that the presence of certain elements in the structure can actually have a pretty big impact on uh, how they behave as ion conductors or how they're predicted to behave as ion conductors. And it's sort of surprising because materials can be in all kinds of different structures. Um, But what we find is that if certain elements are present, then regardless of the structure, there's actually, they they behave kind of similarly. Um, And this is especially pronounced if we look at the most negatively charged elements in the material. For example, if materials have fluorine in them, regardless of what the structure looks looks like, they're almost always predicted to be bad ion conductors. And so, as you said, um, we can use that as a screening heuristic. You know, we're we're unlikely to find good ion conductors that have fluorine in them, quite simply. Um, But we can flip this around and also um, use this to to guide our searches because we can say, well, we're unlikely to find good ion conductors with certain elements in them. But certain elements can also be very advantageous for other properties and so uh, we can make this into a multi-component screening. And that's what we did in, in this paper. So we found that good ion conductors with oxygen in the material uh, tend to be pretty rare. But at the same time, materials with oxygen in them, oxygen in them tend to be very stable and they tend to be easily uh, synthesized because you can do it in atmospheric conditions. So we limited our screening actually to only things that have good, uh, sorry, to only things with oxygen in them for uh, for ion conductors, which our model uh, suggests are going to be very rare. Um, but once we find them, then uh, we can be relatively confident that they're going to be stable and are going to be good candidates for uh, for solid um, lithium ion electrolytes. And so this approach is, is we're, we're exploring this further in a, a follow-up paper, which is currently um, under review. And there's a preprint accessible online and archive, It's called Quantifying the Search for Solid Lithium-Ion Electrolyte Materials by Anion, a Data-Driven Perspective. And in this paper, we do our best to sort of generalize performance of these different materials based on this anion, or the most negatively charged material, uh, sorry, element in the material. And we find that the, the oxides, for example, tend to all perform similarly. The fluorides tend to perform similarly. The sulfides um, tend to perform similarly when we look at these performance metrics of ionic conductivity versus stability. And so in this paper, we're hoping to um, quantify sort of how likely we are to find good materials from each uh, from each family and use that to, to guide how we do our next round of experimentation.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Materials and Megabytes podcast. We look forward to having you join us again next time.